You are now listening to the September 9th broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have the Screwtape Letters, Sermon, and Equipping the Saints. First, let's begin with the Screwtape Letters. everyone, I'm Terry, the host of the Screwtape Letters. We have been sharing stories regarding our spiritual warfare with the devil, drawing from C.S. Lewis's book, The Screwtape Letters. Please note that the main character in the book is a devil and refers to believers in Jesus as patient and calls Christ the enemy. In this particular letter, the 13th letter, Screwtape is extremely angry. He is blaming his nephew, a younger, inexperienced devil named Wormwood, and comes down hard on him for his incompetence. Why is Screwtape so angry? It's because Wormwood has lost control of his patient. The patient have been drifting away from Jesus and moving toward their sight. However, because of Wormwood's mismanagement of this patient, he is now closer to Jesus. The patient has repented of having drifted away from God and has experienced a renewal of faith and devotion to the enemy. Screwtape is furious because they lost their prey that had been almost been captured. In letter 13 and following letter 14, Screwtape points out two reasons for Wormwood's failure. First, Wormwood allowed the patient to read a book he genuinely enjoyed, and second, Wormwood allowed the patient to take walks on a quiet country road which he truly loved. In all his preceding letters, Screwtape warned consistently, make sure the patient does not think, and keep him from being able to reflect. However, the patient read a beloved book and took quiet walks, reflecting and contemplating on his state. These were the very activities that Screwtape told Wormwood to prevent from happening. Well, they happened, and through these undesirable activities, that is from the devil's perspective, the patient experiences what C.S. Lewis referred to as a second conversion. Some have called this experience a rededication of one life to Christ. The patient progressed from a state of feeling a moral obligation to behave a certain way to a state of really wanting to behave that way. When you read the scripture or an inspiring book, do you find yourself reflecting on your life and faith? Do you pray while taking walks? When we are caught up in our busy daily lives, there are often moments when we don't know whether we are driving the work or if the work is driving us. We often have very little time for contemplation, and even during brief moments of rest, we find ourselves thinking about work or what we should do next. It is difficult for us to relax fully when we are caught up in our busy life. There was once an illustration in which Jesus was trying to talk to a person busy with work. He was surrounded by many people, but Jesus approached him and asked a question, Can we talk? Without stopping his work, he replied, Wait a moment, let me just finish this. And as time passed, Jesus asked again, Can we talk? But this time, the person was too busy to even look at Jesus and couldn't respond immediately. Oh yes, just a moment. If you sit over there, I'll finish this quickly and come right away. However, the person became increasingly busy, and the illustration showed Jesus waiting endlessly in a corner. Suppose our hearts are completely consumed by work, meeting new people, or trying to cope with changing circumstances. If so, we might be unable to hear the words of Christ, even if he stands right next to us. In fact, we might even be pushing him away saying, wait a moment, let me finish this first. Instead, we need to prioritize God's will above all else and be completely aligned with his intentions. We should have the will and determination to always seek him. We should be able to adjust our schedules flexibly to have regular, intimate time with God. It is crucial to secure sufficient time for intimacy with the Lord. Screwtape instructs his nephew, Wormwood, how to capitalize on opportunities to trap someone. Foremost, he advises making the individuals discard their God-given uniqueness and personal preferences. They should be made to abandon what they genuinely enjoy. Instead, they should be guided to conform to worldly standards, conventions, and trends. The reason is that if the world becomes the center of attention, the person will no longer have the opportunity for reflection and a chance for true repentance. 
To put it more simply, if a believer enjoys reading books or taking quiet walks in the countryside, he should be made to ignore, abandon, or give up those things he likes doing. Instead, he should focus on meeting the world's demands for achievement, pursuing recognition, and concentrating only on what the world expects. In other words, the devil's goal is to divert the believer's attention away from Jesus and to separate him from Jesus. Then, this believer would only outwardly appear to be a Christian, but he would lack any real influence. The devil knows very well that when a believer abides in God's presence through his own unique tastes and preferences that God has granted him, he experiences true peace and joy within the Lord that cannot be tasted in the world. Screwtape then advises what to do after a person has repented. At that point, the believer should be prevented from taking any action. In other words, regardless of his repentance, he should be confined to mere thoughts and not allowed to carry out his repentance in his actions. The basic idea is to ensure that repentance does not translate into a transformed life. For example, let's say a believer regularly attends gatherings that are contrary to Christian beliefs but eventually realizes the wrongness of his participation and repents. Screwtape is advising that this realization of wrongness should just remain as something that happens in the mind of the patient. Then he would take no action behind those thoughts about wrongness and would continue to attend such gatherings. Screwtape advises using all means and methods to achieve that. If it is accomplished, the person will simply agree with the Lord's word, yet continue living according to his own desires. This person would then be a so-called Christian who lacks any influence and is easily manipulated from the devil's perspective. Furthermore, after this discussion about preventing reflection, in the 14th letter, the devil introduces the strategy of using humility and pride. The devil advises exploiting the fact that the patient, who has experienced the presence of the Holy Spirit and received grace, has learned humbleness. The devil suggests leading the patient to pay attention to the fact that he is carrying himself with humbleness. This is because the moment humans become conscious of having something, its power diminishes, and this is particularly true for humility. By subtly inserting the satisfaction of, I have become so humble, it immediately pierces through humility and raises pride. The patient may catch himself and think, No, I'm becoming proud so quickly after realizing that I have become humble. I shouldn't be like this. Even if the patient might quickly recognize that he is trying to control his own pride, he should be made to feel proud of the fact that he is aware of it and attempting to manage it. Even if the patient might quickly recognize that he is trying to control his own pride, he should be made to feel proud of the fact that he is aware of it and attempting to manage his pride. It's truly astonishing, isn't it? The attack doesn't stop at one or two instances, but continues relentlessly one after another. Screwtape emphasizes that the patient should not be allowed to see the true purpose of humility. For that, a false definition of humility should be implanted into the patient's mind. For example, a beautiful person is a beautiful person. However, a false definition would dictate that if a beautiful person thinks she is beautiful, it is considered arrogant. But if she acknowledges that she is not beautiful, it is considered humble. The same applies to someone skilled at something like music or art. A false definition of humility would say if the person acknowledges his skill, it is seen as arrogance. But if the person admits he is not good at it, it is seen as humility. During the time the patient is engaged in behaving under this false definition of humility, he becomes preoccupied with himself. This is truly a cunning tactic. As a matter of fact, most of us are conditioned to practice humility in this way. When someone compliments us on something, we tend to respond with false humility saying, no, it's not true, you're exaggerating, pretending to be modest. However, the humility mentioned in the Bible is not like that. In Matthew 11.29, Jesus says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. Jesus never displayed the false humility that we tend to practice. He knew clearly who he was and understood the divine mission given to him. So he set aside his own thoughts and surrendered himself to the will of the Father. That is true humility as mentioned in the Bible. Screwtape tries to prevent the believers from grasping the true meaning of humility. If Screwtape's tactics prevail, 
the believers would fail to understand God's will. Instead, the believer would live under false pretense according to his own desire. Jesus helps believers to attain true humility. However, the devil strives to keep the believers centered on themselves. A few decades ago, there was a popular advertising slogan from a cosmetic company that said, Because you're worth it. This slogan sparked a question about human worth. Valuing oneself is reminiscent of the prideful attitude of Adam and Eve who wanted to be like God. At the same time, belittling one's own worth is likewise not a righteous act. As Christians, our worth is solely found in being in Christ. As Paul attests, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Galatians 2.20 We are a precious being because Christ loves us. However, we should not be arrogant because of the fact that we are wretched sinners as those who crucified Jesus. It is edifying for us to understand the devil's tactics and become able to overcome them. We have come to the end of our time together. Let us conclude by reading an excerpt from the 14th letter. Please keep in mind, it is Screwtape speaking these words to Wormwood. The most alarming thing in your last account of the patient is that he is making none of those confident resolutions which marked his original conversion. No more lavish promises of perpetual virtue, I gather. Not even the expectation of an endowment of grace for life, but only a hope for the daily and hourly pittance to meet the daily and hourly temptation. This is very bad. I see only one thing to do at the moment. Your patient has become humble. Have you drawn his attention to the fact? All virtues are less formidable to us once the man is aware that he has them. But this is especially true of humility. Catch him at the moment when he is really poor in spirit and smuggle into his mind the gratifying reflection. By Jove, I'm being humble. And almost immediately pride, pride at his own humility, will appear. If he awakes to the danger and tries to smother this new form of pride, make him proud of his attempt, and so on, through as many stages as you please. But don't try this too long for fear you awake his sense of humor and proportion, in which case he will merely laugh at you and go to bed. Bye.
Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor Malachi Tresler of Trinity Bible Church in Phoenix. Today's topic is Blessed and Blameless. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Malachi. The Apostle Paul ends his letter to the Romans by declaring that the mystery of the gospel was kept secret for long ages, but it was made known through the prophetic writings. Uh, We hear there that the law and the prophets bear witness to the gospel. We're going to look first at wisdom literature. We'll be looking at Psalm 119. And Psalm 119 is the longest chapter in the Bible. And if you've read through it before, you'll notice that there is a very consistent theme throughout this whole psalm. It's all about God's revelation in words. The way that God has revealed truth and beauty and goodness through His words. This is the primary focus of Psalm 119. And the psalmist uses about eight different words to describe the word poetically in various ways. We translate them into English as law and testimonies, precepts, statutes, commandments, rules, promises, and word. And each of these synonyms for God's revelation uh, do have a lot of overlap in meaning, but there are some varieties and shades of differences uh, in there as well. But they really, all these words really do boil down to the similar concept of how God has graciously revealed his will to us through his word. The reason that this psalm is so long, Psalm 119, is the psalmist, and we don't know who this psalmist is, not exactly sure when this psalmist wrote this, but the psalmist is setting out to do something that is really interesting. He's trying to be creative. He's setting out to do something poetic here in Psalm 119. In Hebrew, this psalm is an acrostic. So the first letter of each line or verse follows a pattern. Uh, Here's an example. Maybe you've heard of this acrostic before. B-I-B-L-E. And we could take that, the first letter of those words, and then sort of add something creatively and poetic to it. Maybe Bible stands for basic instructions before leaving earth. So that's an acrostic. We've taken the first letter, filled it out. 
all of the first eight verses of Psalm 119 begin with the letter Aleph in Hebrew, similar to our letter A. And then the next eight verses start with Bet, Gimel, Dalet, Hey, so on. And it's just following the letters of the Hebrew alphabet in this creative, poetic sort of form. And so if we were to, to try to follow this pattern into English, to see what this might look like for us, it might look something like this. All happiness for those on the path of integrity who walk in the teaching of the Lord. All happiness for those keeping his testimonies and following with all their heart. Also, they do not do injustice, but walk in his ways. And you commanded your precepts to be kept utterly. Ah, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. And then I would not be ashamed to look intently at all your commandments. And I will revere you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous judgments. And I will keep your statutes. Do not forsake me utterly. As you'll notice, the language has to get a little bit stilted and creative in order to fit that form, in order to figure out how to make each verse start with the same letter. And so that's what the psalmist is doing. It's hard for us to see that in our ESV translation, but all of these first eight verses start with the same letter. You might be wondering, why would he do this? Why would the psalmist try to fit his meditations into such a strange form or a strange structure? Some think that he made this into an acrostic in order to make it more memorable, so that you could memorize it, knowing that every eight verses would would allow you to, to know which letter is going to start. And so you can sort of predict it a little bit. And that is certainly possible. But it's more likely that the psalmist is using every letter from the Hebrew alphabet in order to ensure that he is approaching his subject from every angle. So he's covering the topic from A to Z, as it were. He wants to be as comprehensive as he possibly can in this poetic exercise of valuing and meditating on God's revelation in words. And so when you read through Psalm 119 and you think, man, this seems a little repetitive, you're not wrong. That's actually the point. It's meditative. It is repetitive on purpose. That's the way that he structured it. It is an exercise of chewing on the word meditating on it, coming at it again and again from slightly different angles. It really leads you to to mull it over in more depth in your mind. So, that's how the entire psalm is structured. But what we must know is that behind that structure is a heart of a person who genuinely wants to desire and rightly value God's Word. There's a lot of emotional language in this psalm, a lot of desiring language. The psalmist desires to love what is good and true and beautiful and to hate everything that is immoral and unjust. There's a lot of motivational language too. So not just about desire, but also about actions. He wants to have integrity. He wants his actions to line up with what he knows his heart should desire. Our big idea from these first eight verses of Psalm 119 is this. Adhering to the Lord's teaching with integrity and diligence is the path to true happiness. And we've broken this down into two points, verses 1 through 4 and then 5 through 8, two sets of four. And first, we should aim to walk in the way of the word to seek true happiness. And then second, that we should aspire to desire the Lord's teaching. Verses 5 through 8. First, we should aim to walk in the way of the Word for true happiness. Verses 1 through 4, I'll read those again. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep His testimonies, who seek Him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong but walk in his ways. You've commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. The first two verses of this psalm start with a declaration of blessing. 
And we have to notice that right off the bat. It is the same way that Psalm 1 starts. If you remember Psalm 1, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. It's a declaration of a state of blessing. It's also the way that Jesus begins his Sermon on the Mount with those Beatitudes, where he says, Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who are meek. It's the same word, similar words, in both in Hebrew and in Greek, and we can rightly translate this into English as happy. Happy are those. Blessed can be translated faithfully into English as happy. In fact, that's actually how the Christian Standard Bible translation, the CSB, translation of Psalm 119 begins. It says it like this, How happy are those whose way is blameless who walk according to the Lord's instruction. Now, when we say happy, we do not mean a thin, trivial, emotional state of frivolity. It is not uh, the sort of happiness that we might think of in a simple pop song or something like that. When we say happiness, we mean a thick, deep state of human flourishing. It's someone looking on from the outside and just observing and saying, this person's in a good place. They are blessed because of their pursuit or where they're at, what they're valuing. It's a declaration of a recognition of a state of blessedness. Now, these first two verses are important for us to recognize because they're going to set the agenda for the entirety of what comes after it, the next 174 verses. And here's what they're doing. It is a declaration that the way of blessing is the way of the Lord. The psalmist is casting a vision for what true human flourishing looks like. This is definitional of wisdom literature. It's saying there's two ways to live for those who would listen. There is a wise way and there is a foolish way. This is, says the psalmist, what the good life is. It is walking in the way of the word. This is how you get flourishing. This is blessedness. This is how you find true happiness. Keeping a close walk with God, following his path, is the happy life. And that does not mean the easy life. The happy life is not guaranteed to be the sort of happy life that you might have pictured in your own mind. It does not necessarily mean an endlessly prosperous life. It does not mean a sinless life. It doesn't mean a life that is insulated from suffering. But diligently pursuing God's instruction is the happy life, according to the only definition that matters. He's essentially laying out two ways to live. Are you going to be wise or are you going to be a fool? Similar to Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, the one who is wise, of course, builds his or her life on the words of God. The one who is the fool ignores or rebels or rejects God's word or authority in his life. And so, friends, we're struck right from the beginning of this psalm with a challenge. And this is the primary challenge, really, of the whole psalm and really a controlling principle of the Christian life. Here's the question. Do you believe that God knows better than you do? Do you believe that his instruction and teaching are for your good? Do you believe that your king could provide and preserve all of the principles that are necessary pertaining to life and godliness for you to have them for your good and your happiness and your blessedness and your flourishing? Do you trust this king? This is the question that has to be controlling our approach to this psalm. The other option, the alternative that you might be thinking or you might have thought in the past is that this this instruction, this law, these testimonies, these statutes are just old. They're disconnected from reality. They're too constricting. And in reality, I think they lead to a stifled life rather than a truly happy life. Is that what you're tempted to believe this morning? Let me just try to draw out some connections why we, like the psalmist, ought to trust that God's instruction is good, God's instruction is right, 
And God's instruction is trustworthy. All theology begins with God. It's an important principle. So what do we know about God? Well, we know that God is altogether good. We know that God never lies. We know that God never commits evil or approves of evil. We know that God's judgments are never unjust. So in this sense, God is blessed in the truest and highest sense of the word. This is the character of God. God is blessed. He is happy in that sense. He is self-sufficient, good, beautiful, true. And there is no shadow or taint of evil or lying in him. This is the character of God. His, his instruction is an expression of his character. God's word is an expression of God's character. And therefore, his instruction is, as he is, good and right. To pursue blessedness, to pursue happiness, we have to track it back to its original source, which is our creator, which is God himself. And we know God only because he has graciously, divinely, supernaturally revealed himself to us through his mighty acts and through his word. So I hope you see right off the bat from the beginning that this is not a suggestion to follow some blind moral obedience to some random guidelines that God made up arbitrarily in order for you to get by obedience what you actually want more, which could be anything other than God. I'll obey God with whatever rules he makes up so that I can get what I actually want in a misguided way where you're pursuing happiness that is self-centered and sinful. The pursuit of God in his law here is not simply to get blessing, it is to get God himself, which is the blessing. It's not the pursuit of obedience for the sake of getting hashtag blessed with material prosperity or whatever you might think when you think of the word blessed or blessing. This diligent pursuit of God's ways is about the relational pursuit of God himself. You can see it clearly in verse 2, that he seeks God with an upright heart. So if you want the blessing, you go to the source, which is God. And how do you get to that source? Well, you follow the path that he has provided. This is how you get to blessedness and happiness, to God himself. Here's where this hits close to home for you and I. Ever since Adam questioned God's goodness in the garden and went astray like a sheep, the relationship between God and his people was ruptured. The disobedience of God's word ended the relationship in the covenantal way it was meant to be enjoyed. And when God redeems his people out of Egypt, Israel, and he promises them many things through Abraham, he re-enters into covenant relationship with them again by re-establishing his word again. It's like, listen to this word again this time. He gives them his law. So we, we have to recognize that God giving his instruction to Israel is actually a gracious blessing to them. Do you understand the law in that sense? That it is actually a gift from God to know what leads to human flourishing and a, a life that pleases him? It was a gift to Israel meant to help them, meant to free them from their life of ignorance and doing whatever was right in their own eyes. The law is a guide in this sense. It is a gift to be in relationship with God. Do this. Just as Adam and Eve thought that God was keeping something better from them by giving them the instruction not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you and I, friends, are prone to think that God's instruction for us is simply him trying to keep something from us. He's trying to keep us from being truly free. This is the temptation. I wonder if you've ever had that thought slither across your mind before. That God's holding out. And we've, we flip this blessing upside down and we think, well, no, blessed are those who make up their own rules. Blessed are those who stay true to themselves. 
If I can just make up my own rules, well, then I can pursue happiness in my own terms, and I can be the captain of my own ship, and then, and only then, will I be able to be perfectly content. And this is what we're going to be faced with over and over again in this psalm. That's a lie. It's a trap. Embracing God's instruction is not what is keeping humanity from reaching its full potential and human flourishing. It is actually, indeed, friends, quite the opposite. But we are prone, aren't we? We are prone by our nature and we are trained by our cultural intuitions to think that anything that binds us or constrains us must inherently be harmful. This is the lie. That we're trained to think that in order to be truly free, the highest good is, of course, to be truly free. Well, then that means in order to be truly free, we have to throw off the shackle of every authority that is not us. Every constraint outside of us. So God and His instruction, His will for us, well, that has to be, that has to be rejected in order to be authentic. I gotta be true to myself. We have to make up our own rules to really pursue happiness. Otherwise, we're not being authentic. But I want to suggest that this psalmist's goal is not authenticity because he's not pursuing his own feelings or thoughts in order to be true to himself, if that's what we're defining authenticity to be. The psalmist's goal is integrity. He desires for his actions to line up with what he trusts is better than his own feelings, which is God's instruction. There's an important difference, I think, between this cultural definition of authenticity, being true to yourself, and integrity, which is the Christian's desire to be the same on the outside as we are on the inside, and to desire rightly what we ought to desire, and to live in such a way that it is evident that we believe that that is true. Not just being true to his own changing thoughts or emotions, but seeking the unchanging God with all of his heart. Now, you might be discouraged right off the bat, even in this first verse, by, by seeing that word blameless in the very first verse. Blessed are those who are blameless. I think, wow, we didn't even finish the first verse, and I'm out already. Uh, this psalm is not about me. I can't find anything about this uh, that pertains to me. I am definitely not blameless. I will never be blameless. So let's just carefully think about this word for a moment. Biblically. As we can start by just clearing the air with a catechism question and answer. This is question 13 from the New City Catechism. It asks this question. Can anyone keep the law of God perfectly? The answer it provides. Since the fall, no mere human has been able to keep the law of God perfectly, but consistently breaks it in thought, word, and deed. You see this in Romans 3. It is the consistent teaching throughout Scripture. And yet, we see within Scripture that there are mere humans who are called blameless. How are we going to make sense out of this? Check it out in Luke 1. Luke chapter 1 says, Zechariah and Elizabeth walked blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. So what we have to come to terms with, if we're trying to synthesize what the Bible is telling us about humanity is that no one can follow the law perfectly, no one is sinless, and yet we can walk blamelessly. This does not mean that they were without sin. I love the way that the one commentator, Christopher Ash, puts it. He says this, quote, Blamelessness is about direction rather than achievement. It is, again, to have that integrity. Well, the Lord knows we can't keep the law perfectly, and he actually He knows that so well that he built that into the law. That's why the law includes provisions for when we sin. That's what the sacrificial system was designed for. So do you see, uh, even here, how the gospel is foreshadowed? So here's what this means for the Christian. We cannot be sinless in this life, on this side of glory, but we can and ought to pursue integrity by acknowledging our sin, following the law, following the law's direction to confess our sin and confess it as such, and to recognize to be blameless is actually simply to confess Christ as our only hope of righteousness. That's where our blamelessness is found. 
to acknowledge that we desire not to sin, and yet if we do sin, we have a mediator, one who interposes his righteousness for us. We can, as disciples of Christ, those empowered by his Holy Spirit, repent. We can turn from our own self-destructive paths, and we can turn back to the path of happiness, of blessedness, which is the path that leads to God himself. Our holiness is our happiness. Don't believe anything other than that. Our holiness is not perfect. Our holiness is not not sinlessness. It is not a self-empowered righteousness, but it is a willful confession that God's ways are better than our own and that we fall short and we confess and we repent and we trust in the righteousness that he gives to us that can only be received by faith. And the psalmist even hints at this confession in the next few verses, in verses 5 through 8. Second, aspire to desire the Lord's teaching. Verses 5 through 8. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Then I shall not be put to shame, having my eyes fixed on all your commandments. I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous rules. I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. The psalmist expresses here in the form of a prayer the desire to keep God's statutes. Verse 5. If blessedness is being on God's path, then to be on your own path is a curse. If the path towards God is the path that he provides, then to be on your own individual self-created path is actually a curse, not a blessing. And so this prayerful meditation is actually an expression of his goal to train, to disciple his heart, to desire to be upright and to follow God so that he does not go astray like a lost sheep, which is how he ends this whole psalm in Psalm 119, the very final verse of Psalm 119 a recognition of needing a shepherd. What we find in these verses is that it is a fearful prospect to be handed over to your own sin. Spurgeon, commenting on this passage, says that the psalmist trembles lest he should be left to himself. And this fear is increased by the horror which he has of falling into sin. One of my kids has recently taken to propagating seeds It's a fun little hobby. And so he'll take seeds out of different fruits, vegetables, and put them in a damp uh, napkin and a Ziploc bag and put them in the fridge in a cold, damp place to let them germinate. And then once they germinate, they sprout. He puts them into little containers of soil and he he sprays them and uh, covers them with a dome so it acts like a little greenhouse. And it's consistently surprising and fun just to, to see those little seeds begin to peek out from the soil. And to see the leaves draw up from that dirt and to begin to stand tall and to spread out. The soil provides the system of nutrients and connection to the water and air that that seed needs. We would recognize that if he planted that seed in concrete, it would never sprout. If he put that seed in wet concrete, it would never flourish. And yet we, in our ridiculousness, try to nestle our hopeful seed of happiness into unrighteousness and sin, and then step back and expect it to sprout up and flourish. The definition of foolishness. One of the works of the Holy Spirit is to bring us conviction of that ignorance and rebellion and sin. And in our greatest moments of clarity, we recognize that there is no hope of blessing being on our own self-defined path. The psalmist's greatest fear is wandering so far off that he's not going to be able to find his way back. Or worse, that once he's gone off the path, he won't want to come back. So as he's meditating, as he's writing this out, his earnest desire in verses 1-4 through is to keep God's precepts utterly, exceedingly, strengthfully, with the intended outcome in verses 5-8 through eight, that he would never be separated from God himself utterly, exceedingly. The goal of keeping the law of God is 
not a, a boastful, short-sighted goal that this psalmist is engaging in. It's actually just a bold personal resolution and a humble dependence upon God Himself. I hope you see this. It is a bold declaration and a humble dependence both at the same time. He prays like Augustine prayed in his confessions. Lord, give what you command, O Lord, and then command whatever you will. It is a humble dependence upon the power of God in prayer. A bold resolution and a humble dependence. The Father gives the words that lead to life. Then He sends the Son, who is, of course, the eternal Word, who assumed a human nature, who lived out the law of God with absolute integrity as not a mere human, a true human, but not a mere human, did obey the law of God perfectly in every way. He meditated on the law of the Lord in the way that Psalm 1 talks about. He truly fulfilled the law on behalf of all those who would confess their sin and trust in Him as the way, the truth, and the life. And on the cross, Christ faced the horror that this psalmist did not want to face. Christ faced the horror of sin. Even in the garden, as he anticipated being forsaken by God, he cried out with sweat like great drops of blood. And this is what we know about the person and the work of Jesus Christ, that he was forsaken, even though it was you and I who deserved to be utterly forsaken. That Christ was forsaken by the Father so that we can confess with bold confidence that nothing now will separate us from the love of God in Christ. It is the recognition that God provided all that he requires in the life of Christ. And then the Holy Spirit is given to those who desire earnestly to walk in the way of their Lord and Savior. From beginning to the end, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, God is himself the author and finisher of our faith. We do not earn our righteousness before God. It is a gift to be received by faith. And because, and because God has done all that for us, he has showed us the way he has chased us down with his rod and his staff. He has plowed through every mountain that stood between us. He has built the bridge that brings us back to provide the path to himself. Because of this, we ought to aspire to desire the Lord's teaching, not out of duty, but out of delight, because we want to please and be like the one who redeemed us. Friends, there is the freedom that we truly need. It is the freedom from ourselves, it is not the freedom to ourselves. Freedom from the fear of God's just condemnation is, is gone. The freedom from our obedience to our own fallen, fickle, changing hearts and minds can be gone. The freedom to want to obey the law of God because we desire to please and resemble the God who pursued us in pursuit of Him, this is where freedom is found. This is the message of Psalm 119. Pursue God through his word. This is the happy life.
Like the voice of one crying in the wilderness makes straight the way of the Lord, Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries is looking for those who will partner with us in this ministry of making a path straight for the Lord directly to the hearts of listeners. If you would like to partner with us to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ and deliver the saving grace of our Lord to others through volunteering, through prayer, and through donations, please call us at 602-866-8999. That's 602-866-8999. The following program is called Equipping the Saints. Hello, Heart and Soul listeners. I'm Pastor Greg Lundstedt, and I'm so glad that I can share my series from Equipping the Saints with you. I pray that God will grow each and every one of you in Christ through this series. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, or you could translate it this way. They've got it in italics. It literally could be translated, having had the eyes of your heart enlightened. Since you've been enlightened, the New King James translates it that way, and I believe they're correct. So that you may know, and he says these what's here. What is the hope of your calling? Guess what? The hope of your calling. You would understand it. Wow, what great hope we have. What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? I pray you'd understand that. And then notice this. And what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. May your faith in Christ work out powerfully. Your desire for it to work out. It's that same power that raised Christ from the dead. You can read on in Ephesians 1. Then how about Ephesians 3, verse 20? Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we ask or think. That's a great one to put us in our place and to, to praise him, right? It says here, According to the power that works within us, that's the Spirit working in us, to Him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. He's able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond what we ask or think. We've got to trust Him. May that faith in Christ, believing who He is, what He said, and what He will do, may it work out powerfully in your life. That's a good prayer. Pray that for one another. It's a good prayer. Paul desires that for them. That means that's God's desire. It's God's desire. It's very encouraging, isn't it? When you're suffering, when things are going bad, when you trip up, whatever it might be, it's very encouraging. It's very encouraging. You see, God is a great God, and we know that faith comes from hearing, and hearing from the Word of Christ, as His Word works out powerfully by His Spirit in our lives. So then we've seen that we need to allow... God's desires. We need to trust that God will take these desires and fulfill them. We need to pray for that. Every desire for goodness and that the faith would work out powerfully in our lives. That we would walk in a manner worthy of our calling. It's a great prayer. And notice the result. Verse 11. I'll read it into the result in verse 12. To this end we pray for you always that our God may count you worthy of your calling. Fulfill every desire for goodness and the work of faith with power. And here we go. Here's the purpose or goal. In order that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him. You see, because if you're trusting Christ and he's working that out powerfully, he gets the glory. You see, if you're desiring to do what is good and allow him to do it through you, he gets the glory. You see, it's so that he'd be glorified. When this works out that way, who gets the glory? It's Christ. It's Christ. In order that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified. The name represents the person. And it's God's desire that our Lord Jesus Christ be exalted, to be glorified. And that happens when we trust in him and allow his character and goodness to be manifest in us. And he fulfills those prayers for our desires. You've got to get your desires right. Every desire for goodness. Every desire for the work of faith. You've got to get your desires right. Got your desires right. God is eagerly desiring to bring this about, that Christ would be glorified. He says that in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord is our Lord. Obviously, they're believers, but it's our Lord. The Lord, the term speaks of deity, the Lord, the I am. 
Jesus. Matthew one twenty one. you shall name him Jesus, Yeshua, for he shall save his people from their sins. Christ, Messiah, speaks of the king who would suffer for the glories to follow, who would reign forever and ever, that our Lord Jesus Christ. So when you desire the things of Christ, you desire to walk in a manner worthy, you desire his goodness, you desire your faith in him to work out powerfully, and he answers that prayer, who gets the glory? Christ does. In order that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him. Glorified in you, first of all, in your life. Your life manifests the glory of God in what he is doing through you. He's glorified in you. And second, he's glorified as we are in him. You know, we're going to share in his glory. First Thessalonians 2.12, we're going to enter into his kingdom and glory. First Peter 5, 1 Peter 5.10, he says here, And after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his what? Eternal Glory in Christ. Eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish. Called you to his eternal glory in Christ. Tremendous. We will be glorified in Christ for all eternity. Philippians chapter 3 verse 21, God will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory. There's a day where there'll be no more sin, sorrow, or tears. We will be glorified in Christ. In Christ. We see the tremendous reality that uh, momentary light affliction is producing in us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. Second Corinthians 4. Paul says in Romans 8, he says, If indeed we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present age are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be Revealed to us. You see, God is a God of glory and grace. You see, when He came, He was, uh, we, we see in John 1.14, we beheld His glory, full of grace and truth. And when we rely on Him, Christ is glorified in us and we in Him. In us and we in Him. But He's not done. Notice our passage. He says here, in order that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him. And then he says something that we got to remember. According to the grace of our God and of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's all by his grace. It's by his grace. You see, there's no way apart from grace to walk worthily. There's no way apart from his grace to have our desires for goodness manifest and fulfilled in us. You see, there's no way apart from his grace to have our faith worked out powerfully. There's no way that Christ ultimately will be glorified apart from us functioning in his grace. And his grace is what? It's his unmerited favor. We didn't earn it. It's his favor towards us. We see in 1 Peter 5.10, he's the God of all grace. We know that he was full of grace and truth. We know that, First John or John 1.14. We know that his grace was manifest in coming for us. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, 2 Corinthians 8, 9, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, that through his poverty you might become rich. That's his grace. His favor towards us in saving us. His saving grace. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. The offer is open to all. For by grace we've been saved through faith. And yet we function by his grace also. Romans chapter 5, we have the privilege of entrance into this grace in which we stand. The God of all grace functions through us when we rely on him. You see, God's not glorified if it's not by his grace, according to his grace. Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. We're not adequate to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God. Jesus told the Apostle Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is perfected in weakness. The Christian life is all about functioning by his grace. And how we do that is we believe what he said. We trust in him. We rely on Christ. And then he is glorified. How did the Apostle Paul start this letter and 1 Thessalonians? Grace to you and peace. How did he end the first letter to the Thessalonians and this letter? The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. 
The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. It's by His grace. So then, when you desire the things of Christ, you desire to walk in a manner where you desire His goodness, you desire your faith in Him to be worked out powerfully, and He answers those prayers, fulfills those desires completely, Christ is glorified in us and we in Him because it's all by His grace. To this end, also we pray for you always that our God may catch you worthy of your calling and fulfill every desire for goodness and the work of faith with power in order that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. What a wonderful passage. May the Lord cause us to live up to our great calling, fulfill our desires for goodness, and our faith to be worked out powerfully so that Christ is glorified by his grace. To some of you, this is foreign. Your desires are not for his goodness or his ways. They really are not. And that's an evidence that something's not right in your heart. And God's gracious. And he offers salvation to you that your heart would be changed. and You would desire the things that... Maybe some of you have become dulled. Sin has gotten in the way. Your desires are out of whack. The things of the world have just come up and become prominent rather than the things of Christ. Confess that. That your desires would be back in line and that he would fulfill those desires for the character of Christ to be powerfully manifest in you. Do we pray this way for one another? We should. Do we think this way? We should. May the Lord cause us to live up to our great calling, fulfill those desires for goodness, and work out powerfully in our lives as we trust Him by His grace so that He is glorified.
we are now ending our Unity in Christ broadcast. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.